Hi, I'm Fee Glover and this is Meet Me at the Museum, the highlight show 2019. What a year it's been. Kirsty Ward. Lem Sissay. Mo Martin. Jackie Key. Russell Kane. Jane Garvey. Miles Jock. Fee Glover. Lucy Porter. Moan Rizwan. Jesse Burton. Holly McNish. So many well-known faces made their merry way along to some incredible museums, showing just what a wealth of art, culture and history we have on our doorstep in the UK. V&A Dundee. Foundling Museum. The Tate. Brighton Museum and Art Gallery. Freud Museum. The Whitworth Gallery. That's good women's library. Yeah. The Tobago House. The Mary Rose. Charleston. We covered the length and breadth of the country, from Portsmouth to Newport, Dundee to East Sussex. But let's not forget the mums, best friends, neighbours and colleagues who joined our hosts over the last year. Everyone and their auntie. In Russell Kane's case, it was his auntie Christine. More on that later. So we've had a route around the archives to carefully select a few memorable moments from the last two series. And you'll hear a sample of highlights that should see regular listeners through until the next series coming up this spring. And introduce anyone new to the show to the type of things our inquisitive guests get up to on their Meet Me at the Museum adventures. First up, author and broadcaster Lem Sisse took his friend Asif Khan to the Foundling Museum in London, which tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, Britain's first home for orphaned children. It holds a very special place in his heart, as he was himself brought up in care. We join them at the point where Lem discovers just how much he has in common with the children who originally lived at the hospital. Well, if we go through popular culture and through classic culture, we'll find that there are foundlings actually right at the heart of it. For example, elf, contemporary reference. (laughs) (laughs) Elf, but they're right, Oliver Twist, you know, etc. And Dickens was just round the corner here. Yeah. Uh, But the Foundling Museum kind of brings all of these stories together and there is actually a painting that was inspired by one of Dickens' stories in here. I think one of the best museums and the best galleries do is they present a story and it's for you to then question that narrative and see what context it's presented in but also whose voice has been presented if you look at foundlings and people who grew up in care quite often they're the voiceless um so who's actually given um the people who were in the foundling hospital their voice that's what i'm looking forward to seeing and hearing So look, here on the wall is a list of the names, some of the names that the young people were called. Every child, when accepted into the hospital, what does it say? It says, every child, when accepted into the hospital, was given a new name, in part to protect the anonymity of the parent. The names on this wall represent some of the first 3,000 children accepted in the 18th century. So we have a a William Strongbow, a Sarah Rainbow, um, Charity Smith, uh, Christopher Wren, that's clearly a reference. Um, Alexander Pope. Francis Bacon. This is an unusual name. Boscawin Hollywell. I haven't come across that name, Boscawin, before. Uh, it's Boscawin Hollywell. Isaac Bliss. Jane Hogarth. Inigo Scotland. Look, why do we think that the anonymity of the parents was important? I mean, what, what is that? About is that because having your child in here was supposed to be a shameful thing or was thought of as a shameful thing? Francis Drake, even there's another name. Francis Drake, it seems quite cold to me, it really does. Yeah, but it's quite often you'd go out if you go out to life with, with some of these names, it's almost like 
the conversation that oh, the child would have as an adult. So actually having some of these names leads to being identified as somebody who was in a foundling yeah, hospital. Yeah, I'd imagine I mean, being called over Cromwell or Geoffrey Chaucer. Or... But it sounds like modern branding to me. This changing of names is very emotive to me as somebody who had my own name changed. You were changed to Norman, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, th- I thought my name was Norman when I grew up. And that was actually the name of the social worker who gave me to the foster parents. So how do you feel when you hear the name Norman in, kind of, in the public realm when you're out and about? I'm all right with it. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm the same person. People say, oh, you changed to Lemsis A. I'm like, no, but my name was always Lemsis A. So this thing, this thing about naming somebody after somebody else who's been fostered or adopted is a really tricky uh, one. Do you sever a child's story and say, no, it started off with this new name? Or do you acknowledge the name that the mother gave to the child as the child is then adopted? It's a really, hey man, it happened in slavery days. Next up, what would your reaction be if you were suddenly confronted by the skeleton of a 500-year-old warship? Well, I doubt it could top that of comedians Lucy Porter and Joe Wells when they went to the home of the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's flagship in Portsmouth. Oh, my goodness. It's so... Because it's very dark and atmospheric. Oh, my God. Yeah. Holy moly! Oh, my wow. God, it's enormous! <gasps> wow, OK. That, oh, That's and incredible. it's like a ghost ship. It's so... That actually does make me feel a little bit shivery, just... Definitely haunted. It's so... It's, I'm glad there's... So there's a big glass wall and then just the most enormous ship I've ever... I mean, not the most enormous ship I've ever seen, but an enormous ship. I mean, it's extraordinary. And it's like... A, it is a skeleton. So it's just bits of wood and uh, some sort of steel bits holding it up. It, it, I mean, it looks like a kind of... If there was like a ghost ship in Scooby-Doo yeah. or something like that. <laughs> exactly That is what that. it would look like. Exactly that. Oh, shaggy, I'm not feeling... Uh, <laughs> I'm not feeling brave at all. What did they say? Like five hundred people on it at any given time, and that is not a lot of space for five hundred. The ceilings. People. Are, I know people were shorter then, but the ceilings are quite low as well. They're I'd very be small fine. <laughs> you would struggle, but I. I'd be banging yeah, my head. I'm only four eleven. I could happily scuttle about like the ship's rat. So yeah, forty years ago, this ship that we see before us was dragged up from the bottom of the sea where it had lain for hundreds of years and uh, I think we are actually going to speak to someone who was on the excavation team at the time who witnessed it emerging from the waters. I'm very excited. Yeah, Head of Research Alex Hildred is here I believe. Hello. 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 Lucy, lovely to meet you. Hello, hi. Thank you so much for talking to us. You're welcome. I love your reaction to the ship. It's so big. That's absolutely wonderful. Well it kind of creeps up on you as well. It's really well done. I was looking to the left and on the left there's some cannons with some kind of models of of like what a ship might look like and I saw that and thought oh that's and then I looked to my right and it all hit me at once um, well the whole yeah. idea is you've got a virtual gallery here which is the same space as over there and the Aye. objects that you see there are actually the real objects that we excavated from the, exactly Aye. opposite on the ship it was actually the most fantastic feat 
Yes. Of endurance and of love, really, by all these people who you maybe only stayed for two weeks, some of them. Some of them, like me, stayed for 40 years. Wow, 40 years of yeah. involvement. So when did you first get involved then? In 1979 as a volunteer diver. So I oh, you a, were actually yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, at the end of the 1979 season, I was asked to stay on as staff, and, and I've stayed on ever since. So, Alex, this year you have discovered some, or new information has come to light about some of the crew members... Yes, of our nine crew, crew members uh, that we've got facial reconstructions for, we, yeah. we found out that actually three of them were probably not born in England. Uh-huh. And one of them, um, his, he was born in England, he lived in England as a child, but his father was born in North Africa. So uh, two of them are sort of Southern European, and because of the objects found with them, we think one was Spanish and one was from Italy. And then the other one completely off the radar because he was wearing an Arms of England wrist guard his isotope analysis from, from his teeth suggesting the climate he, he was in when he was born and when he yeah. grew up so it, it actually looks as though it was North Africa and that's, that's where, where we expect and so we're actually furthering that with looking at DNA on him at the moment so hopefully we'll get the answers of that sometime next year now we've got two members of the crew who possibly have this North African link it really is beginning to look quite much more cosmopolitan than we expected. I must admit, I assumed that everyone would be white and um, had an idea of of what the crew would look like. And obviously, that's not the case. And um, I think we have this idea of Englishness being this thing which has existed forever. And obviously, it's not... It's kind of evolved as an idea and become different things and, and has always been changing. It's just sort of quite interesting, isn't it, about what we presume about England back in the olden days and actually it's always been quite a a sort of multicultural or place of flux especially in Portsmouth and ports actually there's always been people coming and going from all over the world I suppose that's what Englishness is if it's anything it's about it's it's a composite idea isn't it it's lots of cultures coming together to to make this thing and that's what it is now and that's possibly what it's always been yeah Now, I am a fan of the comedian Russell Kane. He was recently a guest on our podcast, fortunately. But when I heard this next episode, I decided I might like his Auntie Christine even more. She had never been to an art gallery before, so he took her along to the Whitworth in Manchester. So, I can tell you exactly why Christine's never been to an art gallery. The same reason I never went to an art gallery till I was 19 years old. The same reason I never even heard of Jane Austen till I was 16. I grew up working class household. Everyone does. My mum's a cleaner. My dad was a builder. We just didn't. We don't talk about things like paintings. We don't talk about books. It's not part of my background. We can. There's a whole part of society that's completely cut off from stuff like this and no one talks about we all we talk about is gender and race and religion we forget there's a whole people cut off by virtue of their their economic background just being normal working class people that never ever get exposed to anything like this unless someone like me takes someone like christine and goes look why it doesn't happen more in schools i don't know i'm guessing that's the whole reason christine right it wasn't you it's not you don't like art it's just no one's ever said to you shall we go to an art gallery that's right yes yes it's really hard for educated middle class people to believe what i've just said is true but believe me still in 2019 it's massively true i'm alistair hudson and i'm the director of the whitworth and manchester art gallery so christine and i were stood in the gardens earlier and we were 
pondering how strange it is that, well, I got all the way almost to 20 years old without anyone talking to me about art and art galleries. You've never, it's never been in your life before. No. What's going wrong with galleries and museums? Why aren't, why are they still not connecting with younger people coming through our comprehensive system where I'm from? Some areas around here have an 11 plus, but you could argue that makes things worse. People are being lost. Art's just not touching them. It's not part of their life. It's not something you would mm. choose to do. It's not on the menu of things you might select. What's going on? What could be done different? What's the Whitworth doing? Yeah. Well, that's everything I'm interested in, basically, because yeah. I've only been here a year as well. I'm, I'm a bit like the new kid who's come right. in with a, you know, a new mission uh, to change exactly what you said. Yeah. And I think for a long time we've told the wrong stories about art in schools and in society. We say it's this, but also that it's these precious objects that sit in a museum or an art gallery and somehow have to go into the museum and you have to be told how to understand this thing that's quite mysterious and then you're supposedly to be you know, a better person for seeing it and then wander off all happy. Mm. Whereas actually there's a, there's a kind of longer story of art as being this kind of tool, this kind of thing we do, this process to change the world. So we might think about cooking as being art or gardening as much as we do um, other things. And um, the history of this place, as I said, was about that idea that you, you experience art and learn how to make things and learn how to make things together. And through that process of making stuff, you learn how to change the world. And that's exactly what we're doing, aren't we? I mean, take this next clip, for example. It's me and that Jane Garvey wandering around the Tate Liverpool looking at some particularly revealing art. If this doesn't change the world, I don't know what will. I see. Somebody has just released the velvet rope for us, effectively, haven't they? We've been allowed behind one of those black swishing lines that usually... inner sanctum. ...you know, keep people out. We're in. We've crossed the Rubicon. Okay. Oh, we've walked straight into some naked women. It's a Matisse, the draped nude. This is one of a series of four pictures, all the same size, painted in the spring of 1936. So it's a woman reclining on a chair, only wearing a rather open kimono. Is that a look that you ever affected? (laughs) Well, it's, it's a look I'd very much like to affect. I think the cat would be terrified, to be honest, if you saw that. <laughs> I think mittens would have kittens. <laughs> Jane's cat's called mittens, by the way. Features <laughs> regularly. Let's hang on. There's a, my attention is drawn to a big pile of clothes over Let's there in the corner. Look. Let's go and have a look at that. I'm not sure whether I like this, but I want to know what it's supposed to be. So I'm going to do my my level best to describe it. We have got a marble figure. Uh, it's a female, a gorgeous female naked body with her buttocks uh, facing us and her face embedded in a mound of used clothes or a pile of rags. Mm. So the rags are real. The marble is possibly not real marble, I don't know, but um, it is a marble in the classic. Yes, yeah, so it is. A, it, it's style. absolutely that kind yes. of classical pose as well, where women are always slightly leaning, aren't they, in, in the classical world of sculpture? Yes, but she looks as though she's getting a whiff of dirty old clothes. Yeah, but also it looks a little bit like a dump scene, doesn't it? Where you've got a whole pile of trash and someone's thrown something more valuable on top of it. So that is our explanation. Shall we go and read the proper thing? Yeah, let's go see. Oh, Venus of the Rags. Well, we went well, well done. Well done. And this, what's the name of the artist? Michelangelo Pistoletto. 
Venus of the Rags appears to bring together an iconic figure of classical culture with the detritus of modern contemporary society. There we are, you see, we were right, pretty much. As the solid Roman goddess props up a randomly formed pile of gaudily coloured second-hand clothes. In fact, this figure is based on a kitsch statue found in a garden centre rather than a genuine antiquity. That's great. Doesn't matter who you are, genuine antiquity or whatever, I still want to go over and touch those buttocks. I want to fold the clothes. Oh, That's do you? the difference between that us. That really is. It really is, isn't it? Oh, I'm the interesting one, basically. <laughs> yes, I'm just the domestic humdrum assistant. <laughs> I could tidy that up for you, love. Jane and I there, celebrating our differences. Coming up next, you're going to hear an intimate conversation between comedian Mawan Rizwan and his mum, Shanaz, who he took along to the Brighton Museum and Art Gallery. Let's drop in on them being taken around the Queer Looks exhibition by curator Martin Pell. This is, this is someone's outfit. This is a leather outfit. And these, I mean, museums are where we collect stuff that is there for generations and generations. And we're collecting this stuff now so that we don't lose it. One of the things from this project, how important the older generation of LGBTQ people are for our history today. You know, if it wasn't for those people, not Jason, but also we've got James at the end, you know, who was out in London strutting his stuff in, you know, outre outfits, making a statement and saying, I am out there, I am gay, I do mm. exist. It was those people that actually allowed us and allowed everyone in Brighton to be stomping around Brighton looking fabulous and not getting their heads kicked in. You know, so we sort of tend to forget, we tend to dismiss the older generation because it's all about being young. But actually, when I was doing this project, I realised actually how significant and how grateful I am for those older LGBTQ people that made my life and your life now, today, so much easier. Yeah, I've had this in the last few years, actually, like a real appreciation for queer ancestors. Because yeah. uh, queer stories are always the first to get killed off. Yeah. You know, And I, I had this conversation with you, Mum, because I was like, yeah. I really... Do, were there any family members you know because statistically there must have been you know did you know anyone in our massive family in Pakistan and or you know you, the, the generation previous to yours like you don't hear those stories you might hear of the wayward uncle who yeah. left the family or like you yeah. know someone who went the auntie who went to live with a female friend or whatever but <laughs> because yeah. there's so much shame yeah. maybe it feels like clothes are a really good way to preserve some of those stories but you know in our culture they hide, they are scared mm-hmm. uh, to be exposed. Yeah. So that is why they, they hide and they, they, they keep on suffering in silence, but they don't share. They don't share? No. We no. don't talk. We, we, we didn't talk about these things growing up. No. It just wasn't the thing, you know. There's just certain taboos you don't go near. You you know that I have accepted uh, from the core of my heart uh, when you said to me that I'm gay. So I want to explore more things which could be very helpful for us to improve uh, our relationship and uh, understanding. When I decided to tell you those things, whether that was about my sexuality, about me drinking alcohol, having tasted bacon, which was actually the, the straw that broke the camel's back because you <laughs> you cried when I told you about the bacon thing, but you were fine with all the alcohol and drugs. It's very interesting uh, hierarchy of shock value there. But, um, yeah, you know, it's been... I, I, I made a decision that I was going to be honest with you because I think we come from a long line of, and a lot of people do come from a long line of lies and their parents don't know who they are and their parents don't know who they are. I'm learning from you that 
how can we accept the truth now i'm quite happy and satisfied that if you are a gay you are a gay i don't i know or i don't know and i'm very happy and satisfied that yeah we understand each other and we are happy i'm glad to but can you please drop the a when you say gay because when you say a gay it makes me sound like a specimen oh <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry for that. No, it's all right. You and it's great. We're both learning, and you, you know, you're 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 an ally of the LGBTQ plus community now. Now, when actor and comedian May Martin took her friend Annie McGrath to Sigmund Freud's house in London, they stumbled straight into some of his belongings, which instantly gave a sense of the man. Oh, right in the atrium, they have his coat and his umbrella and his umbrella and his <laughs> shoes. Actually, that really is quite evocative seeing his actual coat i've seen so many photos of him yeah it's also quite a kind of hipstery jacket i can imagine yeah you know someone in shoreditch wearing that he looked like quite small he was maybe a small man but then look at his boots big feet tiny little glasses little round like what do you call this pince nez <laughs> i've never yeah. said pince nez as <laughs> pince-nez? How, how do you <laughs> i don't know what, you don't know what i'm saying say. you know those glasses that sit on your nose um, oh, yeah, without the yeah. handlebars. Handle <laughs> oh, <my> <laughs> he got his wedding ring here. There's just like a cabinet of personal items, but it, yeah. it does, it really brings the man to life. They have him, uh, the menu of his, um, his wedding. Yeah, very bad handwriting, hasn't he? Well, quite nice, like Italic-y writing, but incredibly difficult to read. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It says that he wore this coat um, when he came from Vienna to London in 1938. Uh right before the war. I've also just noticed he's got a lock of his wife's hair. Do you like that? No, I think it's a bit creepy. <laughs> what do you think? I, li- I like that, they, that he loved her that much, but yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit creepy. I just wouldn't want to carry someone else's hair. I like, would you carry a lock of my hair? Yeah, I would. Yeah, oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. But mostly as like a talking point. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so so people, you could freak me out. Yeah, and people would think I was quirky or something. But I can picture him wearing this coat on the boat with his weird moustache, smoking, yeah. smoking a pipe. His little glasses. Gazing out at the water. <laughs> so we're looking at his guest book now. So he apparently made people sign in or sign out of his house every time they visited. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Salvador Dali. The Salvador Dali. The one and only. That's oh so my God. cool. Imagine your doorbell rings and it's that guy. Yeah. Our uh, producer just told us that Salvador Dali was like a massive fanboy of Sigmund Freud. <laughs> yeah, and Freud just didn't care. Didn't give like, a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He must have, so I guess he, Freud was famous in his lifetime. Like he was, he, what he said went in yeah, his it's, life. It's weird to think of Dali like really sucking up to Freud. Yeah. And Freud just not being interested at all. Rain it in, Salvador. I'm sure Freud wasn't the only hipster to hang out with in London in the 1930s. There was also the Bloomsbury Group, of course. Although perhaps not all of them. Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant relocated to East Sussex in 1916, to Charleston House to be precise, which is exactly where best-selling novelist Jessie Burton took her mum, Linda. Let's join them in Vanessa's bedroom with their tour guide, Terry Henson. But we have the ensuite mm. here. Oh, Height of luxury. So this bath has got the most gorgeous panelling, um, sort of divided into three, like a mint green with these sort of orange circles with a sort of floral motif in the middle and columns. Everything is just always detailed and, and designed. And it's look amazing. at the, yes, the cupboard there as yeah. well. Is- 
That was actually painted by Angelica. Oh, really? Yes, that's one of her cupboards. When she was young? Or? Yes, when she was quite young. Yeah. And so they were quite, were they quite um, happy for Angelica to just paint when she wanted to? Very much so. That reminds me a bit when I was about 15, I decorated the entire ceiling with silver pen and yes, wrote all over it. very attractive. <laughs> She painted over it. I left well, it over. Well, eventually, after about 25 years, we lived with this. <laughs> it was good. There were stars and lyrics yes. and William yeah. Blake poetry. Yes. Uh, all hanging down the cornice, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it, it was a shame to take it away, but I thought, no. I couldn't <laughs> believe that this happened. I just came home and there it all was. Well, that's why I like this place, because yeah. there's this, you know, the children were allowed to do it. Jessie sort well, of does it in her own house, really. Well, good. So there we go. well, I do it now, yeah. Yes. Yes. Once you but start, you can't stop. No, exactly. No. Did Virginia Woolf ever write anything here? I think she did. I mean, there was certainly evidence that she stayed here a lot. And I would imagine as they sort of sat out in the garden or, or discussed things, I'm sure she got ideas <laughs> for books and, and, you know, plot lines and what have you it's from a, characters. Yeah, it's a meditative space. I can it imagine, is, you know, it? coming here and, yes. and letting your sort of thoughts come in. I mean, I think as a as a writer, I'm I'm often considering the space I'm in and, you know, whether spaces are conducive to creativity and I, I I you know most of the time I can write anywhere but I do have my own writing shed mm -hmm. and I think about this house and I think yeah it'd be very nice to come here and just uh wake up look at the garden and I mean not I don't know if it necessarily generates more thought but it just it's just more conducive I think yes it's more peaceful and now for something altogether more bizarre, and I wouldn't have expected anything less from the comedian and actor Miles Jupp. He took his neighbour, Anna Antebe, to Tredega House in Newport, and we join them at the moment where interpretation officer Emma Wilson is showing them the dazzling gilt room. This room, as you can see, covered in all of the beautiful gold leaf and gilt that was here, was designed to impress. And we've got low-level lighting in here because that's what it would have been originally. So you can imagine by candlelight how much it would have glimmered and shimmered and was really set to impress. And then we've got... It's all gone a bit sort of eyes wide shut. There's these kind... <laughs> what are these sort of fabulous masks? Well, we know that masked balls were very much um, uh, a key to some of the Christmas celebrations that took part here. And, in fact, we still have cast lists that the Morgan family um, produced for the various characters that they portrayed in these masked balls. And we have some masks here for visitors to try on so they can have a little bit of a sense of what it was like to be here during one of these masked balls. When you say the characters, they, would, would you be asked to take on a character when you arrive from us? Would you arrive and be given a sort of Yes, part? that would have been a lot of the families that would have come at Christmas would have been Third Orange Cellar or Peasant Boy or uh, other such um, slightly dubious um, phrasing that we wouldn't use these days. Yes, and you, you were to take your mask off at midnight. Yes. But it was about, you could conduct all sorts of flirtations behind the mask, <laughs> I think. And I have to confess that I met my husband at a masked ball. Really? Yes, he didn't know really? what he was getting. Yeah, I did. That is brilliant. <laughs> I know. That is... <laughs> so... That is absolutely fantastic. Uh, uh, more details, please? No, <laughs> right. absolutely not. <laughs> So I'm, for instance, I've, I don't know what character this would be in a masked ball. I'm, yeah, I look, I shall look like Burglar Bill, because I've got a flat <laughs> cap on. Um. Ooh la la. 
like a sort of Mexican wrestler. <laughs> okay, so I've got on this sort of slightly fabulous uh, red thing. It's got sort of gold detailing about the eyes. It is. You do feel instantly different with something like that on, don't you? It I can understand. If you're sitting in a gondola in Venice. <laughs> yeah. And actually liberated in I some way. If you wore one of those for two weeks at one of this Morgan man's parties, you'd feel, goodness knows, where your sense of identity would drift in. Yes. yes. There is this feeling about, of mystery about a mask and, uh, and a certain amount of deception, but that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> From South Wales to the west of Scotland, where the poet and novelist Jackie Kay is showing her fellow poet Holly McNish around the Glasgow Women's Library. As it turned out, this inviting space made Holly reflect on some past struggles in her life. When I started reading my own poems, I was too intimidated to go through the door of the Poetry Café in London. And then when I went into it for the first time, this I was 25, I wasn't, you know, young, young. I saw that the poetry reading was downstairs, but because I couldn't see what was downstairs and there was not a sign that said, come in, like everybody can come here, you're allowed to come to a poetry reading, I didn't go down. So that was like the next hurdle. Um, and then even after I'd been reading poems in theatres and different artsy sort of spaces for a couple of years, when I went to a poetry gig that I was headlining at, when the woman on the door told me it was like £7 to get in, I panicked and paid to get into my own <laughs> gig <laughs> because I was still intimidated by these places and it's so silly. Like, you paid for um, your own gig. I paid for my own gig and then the organiser of the event saw me doing it, which made it even worse, shouted, Holly, what are you doing? Have you just paid to come in? I was like, I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want to say, oh, excuse me. Actually, I'm headlining because I felt like an idiot saying something like that. So, yeah. I'd <laughs> so I, lo I, like, I just think anything that tells people that you can come into a place is important. Yeah, we want to make art accessible and... In fact, between these two pillars when we moved in, there was a massive counter that was there from when the library was used. It was the council library. And we whipped it out straight away because we were just like, everything that we do is about making things more accessible. Yeah. And whether, so it's thinking about like literally physical access or what does having a barrier communicate to people? In fact, thinking back to our history, right, our origins was about making art and culture accessible to more people. And that not only that people should be going and enjoying art and culture, but producing it regardless of their background. Mm. Um, and I think hopefully things have changed, but there's still, yeah, I think there's changed. still our barriers to... Yeah. That's to me what Glasgow Women's Library is. It's a place that breaks down the barriers and the disciplines and the boundaries and the borders and the rigid lines that we have between yes. one thing and another, you know. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I absolutely love this place and wanted to introduce it to you, Holly. <laughs> And so it's nearly time to close the hefty door of Meet Me at the Museum for 2019. We hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane. Let's finish on the musings of Lem Sisse and Asif Khan at the end of their emotive trip to the Foundling Museum. So we're coming to the end of our visit now. I mean, what did you like? I, th I think it was, there was two things that stood out to me. One was the, the emotions that you can get from understanding an object story, particularly around the tokens. I mean, I was really deeply moved and also by the poem that was read yeah. about the mother you know as she had to abandon her child and 
that was the one side, like the emotional aspect of items and objects in a museum, but also the inspiration you get from artists and what artists can do to support the mission of an institution through the generosity and through their kind of worldviews. Yeah, and for me, uh, definitely the poem. And I think those um, tokens are just so emotional. There's so much... Um, in that little tiny object, there's so much invested in it. I was also impressed by not only the knowledge and understanding of the, the staff here, but the sheer passion that they presented. You know, they care about museums, they care about sharing the stories of the museum. And I guess that is a gift that museums can share to the world. What's good about visiting museums and other places of heritage is that it, it can take you away from your moment in time and what your concerns of at that moment in time and takes you to another world you hear other stories, learn about other people's issues and, and you suddenly realise you're, you're connected through the history and through the heritage to where we are now with society but also with the ideas, the movements and the networks, particularly around the, the kind of roles and responsibility of artists where we are today. I, I agree that these are time machines. Museums are time machines. They take us into the past and show how it is relative to who and what we are right now. We don't need Doctor Who. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've got it all here. We've got it in a, a Hogarth painting. That's it for this year's Meet Me at the Museum highlight show. You'll hear from us again in the spring when Mel Giedroyd takes her best friend to her local museum, Pittshanger Manor, for a little bit of this. Wow! That is amazing. I don't want to be trapped inside a Greek urn with you, much as I love you, Purse, but I think there wouldn't be room with there. Most of the museums featured in this programme offer free or discounted entry or 50% off exhibitions with your national art pass, as do hundreds of other venues around the UK. For more information, visit artfund.org or follow at Artfund on Instagram. I'm Fee Glover. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>